Welcome to FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. This sermon features Bible teacher Ben Stewart and was recorded on Sunday, November 7th. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love the chance to connect with you, so drop us a line at podcast at faithbridge.org. And if you are in the area, join us this Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi. And you can always join us for FaithBridge online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Ben. Howdy! Hey, it's good to see all of you. It is so great to be back uh, at Faith Bridge and in Texas. Uh, I brought my son, Owen, who's six, uh, to uh, his first Aggie game. So yesterday was a great day for us, Farmer's Fight. Uh, and so Owen's here, mom's here, and uh, we've just had such a great time being back. Faith Bridge is like coming home. And uh, I just want to say before we jump into our uh, text today, which will be in James, if you have a copy of your scripture, it will be in James 1. But let me just say, uh, I've had the opportunity to travel to a lot of different churches, a lot of places, go, go to a lot of different cities, etc. cetera. And, and, and the more I've been able to do that, uh, the more and more it's become clear to me how special uh, your pastor, Ken Warline, is. And I hope you know that. Um, it's easy to get familiar with somebody, but I got to tell you, his wisdom as a leader, it's become common for me actually to go places. And they're like, oh, you know Ken Warline? And I'm like, oh yeah, I was mentored by him as a matter of fact. Like uh, there's some cred to dropping that name. Uh, but particularly in the last two years that were so challenging for all of us and for leaders of churches, uh, to have a mentor like Ken has been enormously uh, helpful and a gift from God to me. So I wanted to honor him at the outset and say, I love Ken and grateful for him. So if you've got a copy of your scriptures, we're in James chapter one. Uh, let me read to you starting in verse uh, 14 and uh, we'll pray and then jump in. Oh, before we do, just hello to everybody from Rush Weekend, by the way. <laughs> on the east side and on the west side. Good to see you guys. Uh, so anyway, glad you're here. All right. So... Uh, James 1.14, here we go. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, Father, I pray in the next few minutes together that you would help us understand what your word is saying about what you're up to in the world. So, Lord, quicken our minds to, to grab it. But then, Lord, I pray we wouldn't just understand it. I pray it would affect us, that we would care about the things you care about, God that you would realign our affections. And then, Lord, I pray our lives would be different. I honestly pray that we would make a different set of decisions, that our families would be different, our homes, our lives would be different, even as a result of this morning. And uh, I can't create that, but you can. So we're asking for your grace. And I just want to invite all of you, if you're up for it, take a second and you pray and ask him. Say, Lord, please teach me today. Um, and then if you would, please pray for me, that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you.
Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, view a Navy SEAL training exercise. I watched uh, as a team took down a house filled with enemy combatants who were holding hostages. And it was a simulation, so they were using simunition rounds, paintballs, uh, but they shot them out of real guns, so they went fast and hard and hurt. Now, it was my understanding that I would be viewing all this from the safety of an observation deck. Uh, but when I arrived, the commanding officer who I was standing by, as we watched the team approach the door, he motioned to me to start walking towards the door with him. And then all of a sudden he stopped and he was like, hey, I wouldn't get any closer if I were you. He's like, when they blow that door, sometimes the handle can come off like a bullet. I'd stop right here. And I was like, yeah, fine. Like I hadn't planned on being this close. And sure enough, they blew open the door. The team ran in and then he hit me on the chest and said, let's go. And he went running in. So I followed in my jeans and a t-shirt. Uh, and as I walked through the door, two things struck me immediately, uh, metaphorically speaking. The first thing was the chaos of the situation. Flashbangs, smoke everywhere, shots fired, it was bedlam. And the second thing that struck me was the beauty of their strategy. That as they moved through the building, they were aggressive but graceful. They were purposeful but patient. These men would come up to an open doorway and with barely a nod, swing out in unison so they could eliminate targets while never being an open target themselves. And within seconds, they had neutralized all enemies, rescued all hostages, and brought peace where there was once chaos. And I remember looking at that and thinking, that's the Christian life. Or it's supposed to be. That I don't know about you, but for those of us who, who know God by the grace of Jesus, you don't have to walk with God very long before you realize the pursuit of intimacy with God occurs in a context of adversity. That life is very hard and it's not fair. And some of you, maybe you've experienced that even spiritually. You go to read the Bible and all kinds of rival thoughts or affections come up. Or you say, you know what, I'm going to make some changes in my life. And you try to do good, but the good you want to do, you don't do. And the evil you don't want to do, you keep on doing. And many of us get discouraged by this situation. We think, I, I just thought it'd be easier. I thought if I came to Jesus, some of these addictions would go away. Some of these desires I don't want, he would take them away from me. Some of these depressive thoughts and feelings, the clouds would lift. You just thought it would be easier. And then you come to places like this and people give testimonies up front of like, yeah, man, I was using every drug that could be manufactured, murdering people. And then I came to Christ Never felt tempted again. Oh, my addictions pulled up by the roots and cast aside. And you hear that and you clap and you go, he didn't uproot, he didn't mildly prune mine. All my addictions are as robust as ever. And many of you are discouraged by that situation. But others of us go, no, man, I, I know this spiritual life is hard. I've read the Bible. It talks about a battle and a struggle and a fight. I get that, but I just need a strategy. I want to look more like the seals and less like you when I go out into the world. I want to be equipped, informed, and eliminating threats. I don't want to be running around in flip-flops screaming, it's smoky in here. So can someone give me a strategy because the one I'm using isn't working. And if I can say this, that spiritual life feels like a war. Why? Because it is one. Because it is one. 
but it's one in which our king has won the decisive victory. It's fascinating. John in 1 John says about Jesus, he said, the son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That Jesus appeared to destroy something. That's why we celebrate Christmas as God wanted to destroy something. You see it in Genesis. That as our first parents broke faith with God and they pursued life by running away from the author of life, God said, the whole world's going to break and you're going to break. A darkness is out there and now it's in you. And all this cascading destruction in our lives is a result from that. But in the midst of their sin and their devastation with the stains still on them, what did Jesus say? Or what did God say? He said, I'm going to put enmity, that is hatred, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And then he calls the seed of the woman by a singular male pronoun. He will crush your head. God's solution to our struggle is a savior. I'm sending a rescuer who will crush the one who hurt you. That's Genesis 3. The first introduction of Jesus is in the midst of warfare, that his arrival was a landed invasion. That's why demons screamed every time he came into a synagogue. He came to push the darkness back and to set captives free. And so scripture says, since the children partook in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same, that through his death, he might conquer the one who had the power over death, that is the devil, and set free those who were afraid of death from slavery that had held them all their lives. That the weapon the enemy had against you was unforgiven sin. The sting of death is sin, that you're rightfully condemned for what you've done. Jesus stepped in and he took the hit. And in doing that, he knocked the weapon out of the enemy's hands. And he transferred us, Paul told the Colossians, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. It was a rescue operation, the arrival of Jesus, to set you free and to turn you loose. But it's also an ongoing mission. C.S. Lewis said, enemy occupied territory. That is what the world is. He says, but this is the true story of the king who's come, you might say, come in disguise and is inviting us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. That it's like Master and Commander, the great movie starring Russell Crowe, who was in charge of the English HMS Surprise, charged with taking out Napoleon's greatest frigate. And as he did so, he pulled his boat alongside Napoleon's, disabled their mainmast with his cannons, and then he leapt on board and went to war against his men, fought all the way into the hold of the ship where English sailors were held captive. And then in a moment of great triumph, he broke the chains, opened the prison doors, let the captives free, and they cheered. And as they came out in victory, he handed each one a sword. Because yes, you were set free, but the fight's still raging. So you weren't set free from the struggle. You were fret, set free to struggle. And I hear a lot of Christians say, man, I came to Christ, but I still struggle. Yeah, because there's still a fight. But before you were just a victim, but he set you free. And so now you have the power to struggle well. And so we got to figure out how to do that. And so in our remaining time, I want to give you a survey of the battlefield. We'll look at our enemy strategy, then we'll look at our own. So a survey of the battlefield for those who've come to Christ, received the grace of Jesus, I would say the spiritual life is now one movement with two parts. It's one movement with two parts. We move away from some things and towards some things. Once Jesus has rescued us, we begin a trajectory of moving away from ways of thinking and ways of living that isolate us from intimacy with God. 
And we move towards ways of thinking and ways of living that promote intimacy with God. It's one movement with two parts, away and towards. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call to God out of a pure heart. I'm fleeing some things, I'm pursuing others. One movement, two parts. And old school theologians had a word for it. They called it sanctification. And sanctification, it's built off the word sanctify, which is the word holy. And the word holy means set apart. And you hear the two pieces in that definition. So like in the Old Testament, there were utensils that were holy unto the worship of God. So they were used in the temple. You couldn't use them for common things. You could only use them in the temple, certain bowls and plates, things like that. And you hear, away from the common towards the Lord. Uh, My wife is holy unto me, right? She belongs only to me. No other man may touch her upon threat of death, right? (laughs) Some of you have coffee mugs that are holy unto you. Only thy lips may touch it. No pagan dirty lips may. And you hear it away and towards, right? That's the idea. And, And old school theologians had names for each of these parts. They called this mortification, that there are ways I used to live that I must now mortify, I kill. They don't belong in my life anymore. And they call this vivification, but there are other things in my life I wanna, I wanna plant and fertilize and nurture and see them grow, right? You could call this the big no and the big yes. When you come to know Jesus, there's things in your life you say no to. And some people, that's all Christianity is. Well, you can't do this, can't do that. You're like, yeah, I say no to this, to liberate me for the better, yes. It's Christianity. So if we were to picture it like gardening, this is the uprooting of weeds. There's things I don't want in my heart anymore. Ways of thinking, lies I was believing, things I was doing, they aren't in my life anymore. And this is the planting of flowers or grass. I want to cultivate ways of thinking and living that make me flourish under God. If we were talking about dating, this would be me like taking my wife on dates and listening to her talk about her day and I talk about mine and we share our feelings and laugh and cry. This would be not yelling at her or dating other women. You see that? (laughs) Now, one point of clarification before we move on. What I'm not saying is, so this is the devil side of the stage and that's the God side of that stage. So get on the God side, kids. Like that's not what I'm saying because that makes it sound like God's over here waiting for you to get your mess together. And that's not the gospel. He says, if you're in Christ, he will never leave you and never forsake you. But I can be standing right next to my wife, knowing she'll never leave me, but I can feel far away because I've not done the work to cultivate an unrestrained intimacy. Do you see it? And that's the fight away and towards, uprooting and planting, resting and war. But here's the reality. We don't do that on neutral ground. We have an enemy who hates our king, and so he hates us. And so when you come to Christ, you're not freed from the struggle. Now you become an even bigger target in the struggle. So I remember my first day of middle school. I was very excited because I was going to ride the bus with my big brother. That by every calculation was endlessly cool. And so as we got on the bus, he was walking to the back of the bus where the cool kids sat. I, as his relative, was cool by proxy, so I began to walk towards the back as well. And as I did it, this kid stepped up in front of us and put his face right in my face 
And, and I didn't understand at the time that was a signal that he wanted to fight or at least intimidate me. I just thought he had like, uh, you know, uh, uh, proximity issues. But he got in my face and he said, are you Cole Stewart's brother? And I said, yeah. He said, I hate your brother. I said, okay. <laughs> and then he said, so I hate you. And it turns out this kid Marvin was a bully. Got some emotional needs met by picking on littler kids. There was this one problem. He had also decided to play football. And my brother played football. And there was a day at practice where my brother was running with the ball and Marvin attempted to tackle him. And my brother hit him so hard that he went flying through the air uh, and made squealing sounds like a piglet. <laughs> Which when you're trying to intimidate people, cramps your style, right? And so, fast forward back to the bus, he says, I hate your brother, so I hate you. And then he put his finger on my face and said, you look good with a cigarette burn here. And he pushed my face. And then from behind him, we heard my brother's voice boom. Marvin! He straightened up. And when he sat down, the last thing he said to me was, it's going to be a long year, little brother. Question, why do you hate me? I didn't do anything to him. I'll tell you why. I looked like the one who shamed him. And the Bible says about our King Jesus, he made a public spectacle of the enemy triumphing over him when he broke his chains, ripped open the bars and rescued us by his grace. He humiliated him and he hates him. So he hates you. So he is coming for you. So let's look at his strategy. Then we'll look at ours. Okay. What's his strategy? It's to get you to sin. For you to take a willful step towards activities that isolate you from intimacy with God. That's his goal. The best way to twist the knife in God is not to attack him, but to get you to walk away from intimacy with the God who made you. How could he convince you to do that? Why would you participate in such self-destructive activity? Well, he knows that to get you to do that, he has to make it look attractive. So what he understands is your wiring. He understands that you have a mind, cognitive faculty, and you have affections an inclination towards and away from certain things. And he knows you have a will, decision-making mechanism. You got a brain, you got a heart, and you got hands and feet. So what does he do? He has to create an environment where he solicits thoughts to your mind to stir your affections so that you'll enact the will. And the moment you do it, you sin. The moment he creates where thoughts are solicited in your mind to stir your affections, the Bible has a word for it called temptation. You go, Ben, where are you getting this? Well, from James, we read it earlier. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Lures is the mind's attention. Enticed is to stir your affections. And then when you unite with that desire, you take a step, a direction you were never meant to go. So the illustration I use a lot with young single girls is I say, imagine you're getting ready in the morning and the thoughts solicited to your mind, you're single. And as that thought comes to your mind, you say, that is correct. I'm neither married nor currently dating anyone. And then as you're thinking about that, an Adele song comes on. <laughs> and as the thought continually comes to your mind and consults your affections, you go, but I don't want to be alone. I want to be with someone. And then you drive to school or drive to work and you see couples holding hands and, 
and the birds going two by two, and you're like, everyone has someone but me. And then in the midst of that environment, thoughts solicited, affection stirs, a proposition is made, and you'll date a loser. He's beneath you morally. You know he doesn't have the interests of your great king in his mind, but you are caught up in the lie this is the best you can do, and a whole cascading world of tragedies awaits for you. But do you see it? Or guys, you'll be getting ready for bed at night, and the thought will solicit to your mind, you should look at naked people online. And you go, naked people? Okay. <laughs> and that's about it for you. James says each one is tempted. Temptation's coming for all of us. Temptation doesn't mean you're weird from us. It means you're one of us. Some of the greatest self-knowledge you can have is how does he come at me? What's the lure? What does he dangle? What do I believe? What do I think? How do I feel? That leads me to self-destructive activity. You need to be a student of yourself because the devil knows what you must, that what we think about will be what we care about. And what we care about, we will chase. So what do you entertain in your mind? It will determine what you love and what you become. And so if the enemy knows this, if he does this, what do we do? If we know he's coming at us and he's been so effective, how do we combat it? Well, James will give us a couple things. One, he's using this imagery uh, that really, we'll talk about it in a moment, but it's imagery that's coming out of Proverbs. And in Proverbs, it uses the same sort of imagery about an adulterous liaison. And the Proverbs wisdom writer says, don't go near her house. And so what's the first thing we do? We do what Jesus said. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. If I know temptation always leads to sin, then let me eliminate this moment. That's the number one thing we do. Eliminate the moment. It's what James Clear talked about in the book of Atomic Habits. Cues in the environment kickstart a craving. And then we go to respond to get a reward. That's how the world works. And so he encourages people with choice architecture. Decide what you put in front of your eyes because it will trigger you to have a set of decisions. So if I know this moment leads to that moment, let me eliminate this moment and it will eliminate the craving. I'll give you an example for me. I told my wife, hey, uh, you know, I, I need to eat healthier. You have to get all these desserts out of the house. You have to buy children desserts I don't like. This is on you. Because if I see it, I'm going to want to eat it. And so I just need to not see it. And for some of us, it's less about willpower. It's more about choice architecture. It's less about resistance. It's more about forethought. And you need to watch yourself and observe. The second thing, we'll move quick here, number two, is James says each one is lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when she's conceived, gives birth to sin. It's interesting, in Greek, like in Spanish, words can be masculine or feminine. Desire is a feminine word. He says when you unite your will, when you make a decision and you unite your will with your desire, she gets pregnant and has a baby called sin. And then he says sin brings forth death. Sin has a baby too called death. And he grabs that imagery to be disturbing because there's nothing more beautiful than, than the arrival of a life. And so he says, when you consummate with your desire, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when she grows up, gives birth to death. And he says, oh, let me take this beautiful picture of birth and say, you give birth to death. You give birth to something evil into the world. 
And he does this because this is the second best way to fight temptation. That is, you peer downstream. Before I get in the boat here, let me see where it leads. And is that a place I want to be? Or before I unite myself with this desire, what kind of baby will I bring into the world? And do I want that? One of the greatest ways to fight sin is to peer downstream and say, do I want that in my life? And if I don't like that outcome, let me change the inputs. So for me, when I catastrophically hurt my back, I remember in that moment, the doctor told me, I don't know if you'll be able to walk again. I don't know that you'll be able to hold your newborn baby. I was like, well, then what do I need to do? And he's like, well, you're gonna have to drop some weight and strengthen your core. And I was like, okay, what do I gotta do? And I gotta do all this. You gotta drop weight, eat right, strengthen your core, all this kind of stuff. And so I was doing that, but then there was a problem. I like chocolate cake. (laughs) And it would arrive in my life. And as it showed up in my life, saw the cue, kickstart the craving, I'm gonna eat that. And one of the things I had to do was I would do this in my mind. I would think, I can eat that and I can make that choice and walk down that decision and eat whatever I want and it'll feel good. It'll feel nice. But at the end of it, I won't accomplish these goals I need to be able to hold my baby. So do I want to eat cake or hold my child? And I would say it that way in my mind because when you say it that way, you're like, "Mm, cake, how dare you? I say no to you. And then I would quickly throw it in the trash before I close my mind, change my mind, right? But if you peer downstream, where does it take me? And is that where I want to go? Some of you are so anxious and you're so angry all the time and you wonder why and you need to evaluate. Well, when you wake up first thing in the morning, you open your phone and look at all the anxious, fearful, angry, crazy online and then suddenly you're short with your kids and you're upset and you're like, I don't know how I end up here. Were your systems personally des- per- perfectly designed to give you the outputs you're experiencing? So if you don't like these outcomes, analyze the inputs. I'm anxious and angry all the time. Well, maybe put the phone away. Maybe don't let this be the dominant voice in your mind first thing in the morning. Maybe less social media, more scripture. Less posting, more prayer. Because we understand now this is a propaganda machine. It's interesting, Sun Tzu's Art of War was written in BC. It's about how to overcome your enemies in battle. And in Sun Tzu's Art of War, it's not really about how to fight on the battlefield. It's how to degrade your enemy before the battle even starts. And he says, before the battle even starts, send them allurements, send them lust, send them temptations. And then spread among them liars and spies who will erode their trust. And it's fascinating, he says that. And, you know, I live in DC. I watched a hearing with the FBI agent the other day where he was talking about Russia and how uh, they had supported during the previous election both far left and for far right events. And so they asked this FBI agent, wait a minute, Russia helped create these events in America? Which side were they supporting? And the FBI agent said, neither. They just want to watch us tear ourselves apart. So they, say, they sow chaos, so we'll reap the whirlwind, right? Which is so fear and anger. Uh, the top, we just saw this out of Facebook, the top Christian sites on Facebook were all, all of them, 100%, came out of troll farms in Eastern Europe, designed to, to lure you, to anger you. Or if you look at the top websites on the planet today, uh, the top few, you could probably guess, Google, right, YouTube, uh, then it moves to the social medias, Twitter and Instagram, and then the last two, at least at the beginning of this year, were porn sites. And if you add them together, they would be number four most visited site in the world. So how do you destroy a culture? Sow chaos and anger and distrust and sow sensuality. 
So Sun Tzu is still working today pretty good. But here's the thing. My goal here is not to say, so it's the Russians, folks. Let's get them. That's not the goal. You're missing the game. I'm not talking about Russians. I'm not talking about another political party. I'm saying the devil does this. Let me solicit thoughts to your mind to stir your affections, to get you wound up and then present you an option that will be destructive in the end. And you got to be aware of the game and say, does this leave there? Do I want to be there? Then let me stop this. And for some of you, maybe the most godly thing you'll do is put the phone away first thing in the morning and let the Lord shape your thoughts as you look at the world rather than let the world shape the way you look at God's word. And some of us got to go war there. Or I talk to guys that struggle with pornography and I say, where does it get you? And they're like, my phone late at night, just uh, I'm in bed and I set it there. I'm like, dude, you're at your weakest moment and you're setting the world wide web by your head? That's like an alcoholic pouring a glass of scotch every night and go, no, I'm not gonna drink you. Like, that's a bad strategy. <laughs> if this leads to that, then get out of this. And w- one of the ways in Alcoholics and Honest they teach you is they call it sinking through the drink. Uh, and they go, man, if I start here, where will it lead me? And if I don't wanna be there, then let me shut it down here. And then James will go on and say, don't just look at the destruction downstream. He says, look at the deception upstream. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers, that the enemy starts with deception before he moves you to destruction. He plays chess. You know, in chess, you don't try to win in one move. And Satan never does that. He doesn't come to you and go, you know what I was thinking today? Opioid addiction, let's go. Like, that's not gonna work. So he's gotta move several moves back and say, you know what, let me just start with some frustrations some setbacks, let's get some resentment build up. And after we get that push of resentment, then I'll do the pull of allurement. And that's what he does. It's push and pull. It's trial, then temptation. That's what James warns us, right? Let me make life intolerable, then offer a sweet release that'll kill you in the end. And so the smart people look back, and, and a lot of my friends who are in recovery, they fight the battle at their resentments. Let me not let frustrations grow like sediment in my soul but let me offer them to the Lord and trust him. So we look upstream. And then when you look all the way upstream, he says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. And he doesn't point it like, that's really bad for you, that'll kill you. He said, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes down from your father above. He says, the lie that launches a million sins is the belief that your God is not a good dad who will take care of you. He said, that's the worst lie. You saw Satan do it in the garden. He doesn't start with fruit. You know what I was thinking about today, Eve? Fruit, how delicious it is. I'll cut some up. He doesn't start there. He starts with theology. Hey, Eve, God really say you can't eat everything here? It just seems to me your religious commitments are costing you some key experiences, Eve. Seems to me that God is holding out on you with some experiences that would be life enhancing. It just seems to me that he doesn't really care about you and he has to make God look ugly to make sin look attractive. The enemy always starts with theology. Every sin is the fruit of being weary with God. If you hate me, let's say you make that a life goal. 2022, destroy Ben Stewart. Let me, let me tell you how to do it. You cup the face of one of my little children and you look in their face and say, your dad is so sick of you. You just keep screwing up. You can't ever do anything right. You disappoint him so much. You know what would be better? If you'd go away. Because we don't want you here. He doesn't. You're a hassle. And you're never going to get any better. So go somewhere else. 
Go let someone else protect you. Go find someone else's arms to find safety in. Go somewhere else to eke out a modicum of dignity in life. Go somewhere else. Run away. You do that to my child. You enrage me. And let me be clear. This is what the devil does to you. His greatest lies are aimed at your sonship. That's what he did to Jesus in the desert. If you really are the son of God, why are you so hungry right now? If you really are the son of God, why is he going to make you suffer so much? If you really are, he will always attack the loving fatherhood of God. That's why James says, don't be deceived. Every good gift, every perfect gift, it comes from a father above who doesn't shift. There's no shadow, like change. And then he says, of his own will, he brought you forth. I love that. Sin's not the only one having babies in James. God brought you forth by the will of truth. He made you alive according to his desire. That's what it said. Out of his pure joy, he gave birth to you. You fix your eyes on that, and the pleasures of your father will help you defeat the pressures of the enemy. I remember for me, when my first daughter was born, I had the like 2 a.m. shift to hold her when she was a baby. And I remember waking up and holding her one morning and then just feeling this pain in my chest. I was like, oh God, like what is this? And I was like, it's love (laughs) for you. And then I remember instantly feeling the limits of language. I'm like, I have no way to explain this to you. Like to say like, I love you is, is way too small. And to say like, I would die for you. You're like, well, yeah, duh. Like that doesn't grab it either. And I'm like, there's no poem. There's no song that can communicate what I'm feeling in my chest. I've never experienced this before. And then what's crazy about it is you've done nothing. You haven't complimented a sermon. You don't pitch in around the house. You're nothing but noise and need. But I would give everything for you in a heartbeat. I was just like, it's overwhelming how I feel inside about you. And I can't have, I don't have the words to explain it. And you wouldn't understand them anyway, because you're a baby. And I was just like, this is a crazy experience. And in the midst of that, I felt like the Lord whispered to me, Ben, do you think you're a better dad than me? And I had to repent of an unbiblically low view the love of God. So we peer upstream and the best defense is a good offense. That's incidentally how Jesus won in the desert. If you really are the son of God, if you really are the son of God. Well, what happened a few minutes before that? Jesus went to his baptism. Holy Spirit came on him like a dove. His father spoke over him. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He hadn't done anything yet. It's the beginning of his ministry. He didn't miracle anything. Wine's still water. All the blind people still blind. He hadn't done anything yet. And yet the father's like, but that's my son. And I delight in him. And the pleasures of God made the pressure of the desert seem small. If you really are the son of God, stop. Well, you don't really have to suffer. Stop. And Jesus just keeps disarming him with Deuteronomy quotes. Why? Because the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. You fix your eyes on him. And the best way to flee is to pursue a God who came to you. You go running after him. When the nation of Israel was powerless before Goliath, they shrunk in fear. And then David came out and through his humility and weakness, destroyed their enemy, and took his head off. And what happened to Israel? They shouted the war cry and ran the Philistines out of their life. How are you going to drive the Philistines of fear, lust, and pride out of your heart? The son of David fought death for us. 
He saw all your sin, all your shame, all your guilt, and rather than recoil from you, he ran in front of you, and he became your representative in combat. I'm going to war for you. And he fought for us and freed us. And when you understand what the son of David, Jesus Christ, did for you, that he beat death for you, you can shout the war cry and drive the Philistines out of your heart. I promise you. You've been freed, not from the struggle, not yet, but freed to the struggle. And by his grace, we can struggle well. So, Father, thank you that you love us. And I just pray there might be some people here today that maybe that was it. They just, they know you're supposed to go to church, but they just don't believe you really like them. God, if today could be the day they make war on that lie, that would be a wonderful thing. So may some of us, by your grace, slap that weapon out of the enemy's hand. No, my father loves me. And exhibit A is that out of his own will, from his own desire, he brought me forth by the word of truth to be a first fruits of his creatures. He sent my mom, he sent my dad, he sent my youth leader, he sent a church to speak to me the truth and I believed it about the grace of Jesus that would save anybody. And I was changed and I was brought forth and I was born again and I was made new and I'm a child of God, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. I'm loved by my father and any voice that says otherwise, I cast out. That's the voice of the enemy calling me to lesser streams rather than the fountain of living water. And I say no into hell with that lie. And then father, I pray we would run in the path of your commands because you set our hearts free. So if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in Jesus, might they do that first? See the chains fall, see the door come open, see their sin paid for in full on that cross and liberty there by your grace through faith. And then God, for those of us who know you, I pray we'd make the decision now and I'd ask you Lord even now to give us a vision. What are some things in our life we need to uproot? I need to pull that rhythm out of my life. I don't need to go there anymore. I don't need to see that anymore. I need to move that. Ask the Lord if you're willing to show you what needs to be mortified, what needs to change. Make it practical, make it small. And then God, what would it look like to vivify what's beautiful, to cultivate intimacy, to be drawn towards your scripture in the morning and not a screen? to pray to you through the watches of the night rather than read posts, what would it look like to dwell in the house of the Lord? The world needs to see it. As more and more crutches kicked away, people are desperately groping for stability and we have it in our all-sufficient King. May they see it in us. So lead us, Lord, to flee and to pursue for your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name.